Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would get your Bibles out and open them up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 in your New Testament. That's where we're going to be primarily is in the New Testament this evening. So let's get those Bibles cranking to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read one verse there in just a moment that's going to set everything up for uh, our study tonight. It is great to be with you all this evening and I am so thankful as always for the privilege of standing before you and to uh, present some things from the Word of God that I hope and trust will be of benefit to you and in particular tonight some things that will help you to be able to help others with. And that really is the focus tonight. And so let's just get right to it. In 1 John chapter 4, I'm reading here in verse 1, as John says this, 1 John chapter 4, and in verse 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. I don't know if you have noticed in recent times the kind of resurgence of the popular doctrine known as the rapture. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how Hollywood in particular and the mass media has taken notice of the rapture and maybe has even noticed that there is money to be made with this popular doctrine? Think about it, for example, in all the various forms of media that are available to us today. A few years ago, a movie was released entitled The Remaining. I had never heard of this movie before until doing kind of some research for this lesson. The tagline of that particular movie is... After the rapture, there are fates worse than death. That movie, as you can guess, it was marketed as a horror movie because of all of the spooky things that will supposedly take place after the rapture. Uh, The network broadcasting cable company known as HBO, they got in on the action by producing a television program called The Leftovers. That show ran for three full seasons. And the whole premise of that show is... What will life be like on earth after the rapture? After all of these people are just snatched right out of their shoes. That's kind of a pretty catchy uh, kind of advertisement there, don't you think? Uh, Video games even got in on the action. The PlayStation 4 released a game titled Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. It's kind of a first-person role-playing game where you walk around a village that has become deserted because all of the inhabitants have been raptured away. And then probably most famously of all was in the book world. Tim LaHaye and his writing partner, they wrote a series of books that we know as the Left Behind Collection. That series of books, 16 books in all, have sold more than 70 million copies worldwide. The whole premise of those books is, what's it going to be like when the rapture takes place and people are left behind? In fact, the Left Behind books have actually been adapted into movies themselves and they as well have made big money. But maybe what you've noticed and maybe what I've noticed most of all is if you're on social media, there really has been a resurgence with the rapture, particularly this year with 2020 and all the things that have been going on this year. Lots of people are thinking about the rapture. And so here's some of the kinds of memes and posts that I've seen shared in recent times. A friend posted this saying, I am rapture ready. Can I get an amen? Can somebody share this? Let's share this thousands of times so that people will know that I'm rapture ready. Or this one, I actually got a chuckle out of this one. Here's one that said this is what it's going to look like if the rapture happens on a Sunday and all the saved people are in church. 
They're just going to be just sucked right out of their clothes and just taken right up into heaven. Maybe kind of more poignantly, I've had some friends that have posted memes along these lines as we've thought about the difficulties that we've had to endure here in 2020. One friend shared this. They said, if everybody's freaking out now, well, wait until the rapture happens and everybody finds out that there really is a God. All right, eh? The rapture, that's what's going to cause people to really think about the Lord or what about this one? This is one from a uh, kind of a, a well-known denominational preacher named Joseph Prince. And the whole idea behind this meme is that, hey, in the midst of all the storms and all the difficulties, well, the one thing that you can grab onto and the one thing that you can find hope in is the fact that there's going to be a rapture. Well, what do we say about all of that? What do we say about the rapture and how that's kind of just proliferated in popular culture more and more? Well, I'm going to suggest to you this evening that I believe that there are some real problems with the rapture. I believe that what we have been fed and what the religious world at large has taught about the rapture, that it's all just a sham, that it's just not true. And that's exactly why I began in 1 John chapter 4 and in verse 1. Because that verse is the verse that tells us we are not to believe every spirit. Don't believe everything that you hear in the name of religion as being the truth. Even if lots and lots of people believe those things. John says you need to test those spirits as to whether they came from God. And it is my sincere belief that when we test, put it under the microscope of God's Word, when we test the rapture doctrine... I believe we'll come to find out that the only thing that really is getting left behind is the truth. The truth about the second coming of Jesus, the truth about the end of time. This evening, I do indeed want to deconstruct the rapture. I want to do some of this testing, and deconstructing is the word that I'm going to use. I want to equip all of us to have the right information about the rapture. Because the fact of the matter is, many of your friends and your neighbors and your relatives most likely subscribe to the rapture idea. And it really doesn't even matter what religious group they are affiliated with. Most denominations teach some form of the rapture doctrine and understandably, most people actually believe it. And this evening I want to give you some tools that will help you to be able to share with them so that they can see what I believe is the fallacy in an unscriptural doctrine. Somebody maybe is wanting to ask, Okay, Josh, I do have friends and neighbors and folks who talk about the rapture, just kind of drop that in conversation every now and then. Can you talk and explain a little bit more about what the rapture is? Can I maybe better understand that so that when we're talking about that, I kind of have some idea? Well, without getting into a really thorough and really complicated study of premillennialism, and I have preached on that before. You can go into the archives of the podcast and you just type in, in the search bar premillennialism. You'll find a more thorough sermon on premillennialism. But let me just give you some of the highlights, some of the basics concerning one component of premillennialism, and that's the rapture. The main idea behind the rapture is that at some point, Jesus will suddenly and mysteriously rapture. That is, snatch away all of the Christians on planet earth 
Those who are living and those who are dead, all of those dead Christians, they're going to rise from the dead, but He's going to take all of the Christians and He's going to take them up into heaven for seven years. Now, that seven years is important because during that time of the seven years, when all the Christians are gone off the earth, well, the world is going to experience the tribulation. There's going to be this time of just terrible chaos and disorder and tribulation unlike anything that's ever been seen before. And this is, you're going to be your opportunity to get right with God. If you were amongst those folks who were left behind, then during this seven-year window, this is your chance to make your life right with God. Because after those seven years are concluded, Jesus will return for a second time. And at that time, he will defeat the Antichrist, defeat the devil, at which point he will reign on the literal throne of David in the city of Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And at the conclusion of that 1,000-year reign, then all of the wicked dead, they will rise, and everyone will be judged, and then eternity will begin. Now, That is just a thumbnail sketch of the rapture doctrine. And you should know that it is a relatively recent doctrine. I think a lot of folks don't realize that. There was a fellow by the name of John Darby who popularized the rapture concept back in the 1830s. And it has gained kind of significant traction in really just the last hundred years or so because of a guy by the name of Cyrus Schofield. If you've ever heard of or maybe even own a copy of the Schofield Study Bible, and I've ran into some folks who do have a Schofield Study Bible, then what you'll find is you'll find lots of notes in the margin of that Bible and what it teaches is it teaches the doctrine of the rapture. I must tell you that even as you look at all of that, and maybe even as compelling as some of that appears, I need to tell you that there are just significant problems there. And I want to break that out into three specific ideas that I think will be easy for all of us to digest this evening. Three reasons that we can know that this rapture idea, it's just flawed. First and foremost, let's just notice that the coming of the Lord that it will not be secret, it will not be mysterious, and it will not be invisible. You do not need to worry that the Lord is going to return and that somehow you will have missed that. Lord, I, was, I mean, I was in the middle of, you know, putting the baby down for a nap and I guess the Lord returned and I didn't realize it. No, no. When the Lord comes, you will know. And the Bible tells us that. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians 4. In 1 Thessalonians 4, let's just run some Bible. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Thessalonian brethren, they were concerned that they were going to miss the coming of the Lord. I mean, in fact, we think we've already missed it, that it's already happened. And so Paul writes these words to calm them and to reassure their hearts. In 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm reading here in verse 17, Paul says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. Now that right there, that is the rapture verse. If you're talking with somebody who believes in the rapture and they have some familiarity with their Bible, this is where they're going to go to attempt to prove that idea. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17, in fact, underline that phrase, caught up. 
caught up, being summoned up into sky. In fact, this is maybe the picture that folks are kind of getting in their mind when they think about that. That you've got Jesus, he's, he's invisible. Now, the Christians can see him because they're going to him. But, you know, all the other people, all the heathens and all the non-Christians on planet Earth, they can't see Jesus. Jesus has come mysteriously and all the Christians now, dead and alive, they're being summoned to Jesus in the sky. They're being summoned up. They're being caught up together with him. And as that's happening, of course, that means that cars are colliding and planes are crashing and mayhem is ensuing in the wake of all of these people who were driving those cars and flying those planes. All those people are suddenly just disappearing. They're being raptured away. And of course, that is the basis for that very well-known bumper sticker that you sometimes see. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I'm saved and Jesus is coming. He's going to rapture me. And when he does, hey, there ain't going to be anybody behind this steering wheel. Can I ask you though, is all of that really what 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17 is talking about? Something that's going to happen all secret and invisible like and being caught up to meet the Lord in the air while, while everybody else just happens to miss and they didn't even see the Lord returning? Just back up one verse in the text. One verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. How can you miss that? That passage says that there will be at least three audible announcements of Jesus' return. There'll be that cry of command, the voice of the archangel. What in the world does that sound like? There will be the trumpet of God. Nobody is going to miss this. Nobody's going to say, well, I guess I just wasn't paying attention when that happened. I was riding the lawnmower. I guess the lawnmower was just too loud. No! Everybody will hear that the Lord has come. In fact, while we're right here, Would you just notice verse 17 again? Verse 17 says, So we will always be with the Lord. Emphasis always. Not seven years we're going to be with the Lord. No, always. We're going to always be with the Lord when Jesus returns. There's going to be this sound at the Lord's return. Furthermore, there's not just going to be audible sounds. There's also going to be something visual. There's going to be something to see at the Lord's return. Would you just flip over a page to 2 Thessalonians? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, there the Bible tells us that at Christ's return, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, How's anybody going to miss that? Flaming fire with angels. You talk about a visible return. Talk about the kind of thing that will be seared into your mind, maybe even for all of eternity. You will hear the Lord's return. You will see the Lord's return. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, there won't be anything secret, anything mysterious about any of that. I think think if we just stopped right there, that would be more than enough. It would be more than enough for us to see that, whoa, this rapture thing, it's just got major problems with it and I just don't think I can get on board with that. But I actually need to build on this. Because the Bible, furthermore, never says anything 
about this idea of the Lord returning twice. No, what we're reading about here in Thessalonians, it's not a return of the Lord. It is the return of the Lord. And the reason that Jesus does not need to return twice is because of this second big idea, and that is that there will only be one resurrection of the dead. The rapture doctrine teaches, at least, and depending on which premillennial chart you're going with, it may teach more, but the rapture teaches at least two separate resurrections. The first that will occur at the time of the rapture, and then the second many years later at the end of the millennial reign. And so we've got this first kind of secret resurrection that's going to take place of all the righteous folks, and then after the tribulation, after the battle of Armageddon and all this other stuff, well, then there'll be the resurrection of all the wicked folks. You do the math, it's really not that hard. That's at least two resurrections. But look at what Jesus says about that. In John chapter 5, please. In John chapter 5, really, if anybody's going to know about how this stuff's going to play out, it's going to be Jesus, right? In John chapter 5, Jesus is the guy to tell us about the end of time. In John 5, I'm reading here in verse 28. John 5 verse 28, Jesus says, don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice an hour, Jesus says. A specific, singular moment in time when all will come forth from the grave. Not one resurrection over here for this group of people and then another resurrection 1,007 years later for this other group of people. No, one resurrection for all people of all time. Can we go back to that passage in 2 Thessalonians again? Let's see how these passages harmonize. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, look in verse 7 again. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. I want you to notice here, it says on that day, on that day the Lord is coming to punish and to reward all at the same time. One coming, one resurrection, everybody's going to be dealt with all on the same occasion. Can I add one more verse in this connection? Look in Acts 24. In Acts chapter 24, this might very well be the passage that just kind of puts the death nail in this idea of multiple resurrections. Came across this passage in the, a few weeks ago when Jason Bridgman and I were doing the uh, chapter chat on Acts 24. And I just thought, man, did Paul, is he speaking to Felix here? This just, this just kind of nails it in Acts chapter 24. I'm reading here in verse 15. In Acts 24 and in verse 15, Paul says to Felix, he says, "...having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust." Paul doesn't say anything here about the just having a resurrection of their own. And then after this long period of time, there'll be this other resurrection. After all these other events take place, then all the unjust people, they're going to be resurrected. No, Paul says, Jesus says, 
Scripture says there will only be, only need to be, one resurrection from the dead. Which leads then to this third observation about the rapture doctrine and why I believe it's flawed, why it doesn't pass the test, and that is that the earth, biblically, is going to be destroyed when the Lord returns. You know, the whole rapture scenario hinges largely on the idea of this tribulation here on earth. There's going to be this terrible violence and suffering and rioting and wars and wickedness that lasts for seven years. If you've seen movies like Mad Max, it's going to be that kind of a post-apocalyptic world. Earth is going to become just this, this wasteland, the kind of thing that you see depicted in television and in movies all of the time when the Lord returns for that first time. But the Bible paints a very different picture, doesn't it? The Bible shows us that when the Lord returns, the one time that He's going to return, there's not going to be all kinds of wars happening and armies and antichrists who are wreaking havoc on planet earth and they get to continue to wreak that havoc for all kinds of years. No, the Bible says that when Jesus comes, this world will be completely destroyed. It's 2 Peter chapter 3 that I'm looking for. In 2 Peter chapter 3, you know, I am always amazed at how often folks who are just kind of enthralled with uh, knowing more about the end times and how's all that going to play out, I'm always amazed at just how quickly they will go to really, really difficult passages like, like in Revelation where there's all these signs and symbols and it just relies heavily on all kinds of metaphors and imagery that it's just difficult to sort that out. Yet I'm, I'm just always amazed that folks jump to those verses but then ignore these plain and simple and direct passages like 2 Peter chapter 3. There's not any metaphorical language here. 2 Peter chapter 3, look in verse 3. Let's just start all the way back up in verse 3. 2 Peter 3 verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this one fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why? Because the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Do you see what these passages are saying? These passages are telling us that Jesus will never set foot on earth again. 
Not a single passage of Scripture says that Jesus will walk this earth or establish an earthly kingdom on this earth or reign on planet earth in any shape or form for any period of time. And why not? Because this, this earth, it's going to be burned up, melted, fervent heat, absolutely dissolved. The only kind of tribulation that there's going to be is the tribulation that happens to the earth when it is utterly obliterated. This concept of the rapture, it just falls flat when you test it with Scripture and when you deconstruct it. Now, what does all of this mean for, for you and me? You know, most of you, if not all of you, you came to church this evening and you did not believe in the rapture. And probably at this point, you even more so do not believe in the rapture. And so, how does all of this affect us? I never like to end preaching without some direct and personal application for us. Well, let me give you just a couple of implications for you and I. First and foremost, let me just tell you that we just don't need to be getting all worried when folks start talking about signs or how current events in our world relate to the tribulation, particularly with what goes on over in the Middle East. There are just some folks, I'm convinced, they just stay absolutely glued to the evening news because they want so badly to stitch and to tie current events with old texts like Daniel and Ezekiel or Revelation. And they want to pack all of that together to try and demonstrate that, oh, there's signs. There's signs happening in our world right now that let us know that the end is near. A a sister in Christ, not here, sister in another state, she actually posted this picture, this little meme, uh, to her Facebook page. And it's titled, Ten Signs That the Tribulation is Near. And it actually looks somewhat compelling because it's even got some Bible verses attached to it. But that sister, that sister should know better. All that kind of thing does is it just makes Christians look like the little boy who cried wolf in the eyes of the world. In fact, that sister posted that a few years ago. I snapshotted it and kept it and guess what? Yeah, here we are several years later and... Well, the tribulation, as the rapture people would define it, well, I guess it's just still near. You know, ever since the state of Israel was reconstituted back in 1948, it just seems like there's always somebody who's looking over to the Middle East all of the time and they're saying, oh boy, look at that, that happened. Or, oh man, this happened. Oh man, that happened and this happened. Oh, now all we need is this other thing to happen and Jesus is going to come. And I want you to know that all this does, when we share this kind of stuff, when we kind of propagate that kind of stuff, it just feeds into that kind of thinking. And what I think a lot of us maybe need to do is we need to stop listening to the news so much and we need to start listening to our Bibles a whole lot more. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians 5, please. In 1 Thessalonians 5, after Paul's already told us in chapter 4 that Christ's return is going to be audible, it's going to be visible... What's the very next thing that he tells us? Chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come 
like a thief in the night. There are no signs. There are no charts that we could put together. There can be no misusing of passages like Matthew 24 or the book of Revelation or what they said on CNN News to somehow say, oh, all of this means Jesus is soon to come. We don't know that. We can't know that. Paul goes on to say, verse 3, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul reiterates, Jesus is going to come suddenly, unexpectedly, not because some genius put two and two together from watching something on Fox News. And what you and I need to do is we need to stop worrying about all of that. We need to stop worrying about what's going on over in the Middle East. You know what, if you're going to get all caught up, and you're going to get all wrought up and get all worried every time something goes wrong in Israel or Iraq or Syria, guess what? You're going to spend an awful lot of your life worrying. Those people over there have been fussing and fighting since the beginning of time. And I don't suspect that their fussing and their fighting is going to stop anytime soon. But that's not a sign somehow that the Lord is about to return and He's going to rapture anybody. What it does mean though is it does mean that you and I, you and I need to get our courage together. You and I need to be bold enough to speak up. We need to tell folks about the danger of believing what I believe is a false doctrine. You know, instead of whenever the rapture comes up in conversation with our friends and with our loved ones, and we get all nervous about that, about, oh man, I don't really know what to say about all that. How, I mean, I don't know everything about the book of Revelation, and they're probably going to say something from Revelation. And I realize it's a challenging book. Instead of us getting all worried and all nervous and sweaty, we ought to welcome the opportunity to share with them the truth that we do know and that we do understand, I really would like to think that everything that I've shared this evening is very understandable for us. We want to look at the verses and the passages that we can grasp and share those with others. You know, just because I don't know everything about Revelation chapter 20, which is a favorite premillennial passage, that doesn't mean that I can't read and explain plain and clear teaching like, like 1 Thessalonians 4 or 2 Thessalonians 1, or 2 Peter chapter 3, which clearly and obviously contradicts any of those verses that try to prop up the rapture doctrine. It's time for us as God's people, if we really are people of the book, it's time for us to speak up and to speak with the book. We need to show folks the truth. That's what God's people do. And that's especially the case whenever we know what the real danger is in believing the rapture doctrine. Because what the rapture teaches, and this is why I get worked up about it, what the rapture teaches at its essence is, is that you get two chances. You get this life right now before the rapture, or if you don't want to do things right right now, you can get your life right later during those seven years of the tribulation. The rapture teaches that if you don't want to serve Jesus right now, well, well, you'll get a second chance later. And 
Yeah, it might be a little bit more difficult to serve Jesus at that time. Again, tribulation, lots of bad stuff happening, lots of wickedness going on in the world. But you will get that second chance during that seven-year window. And in fact, you can milk that seven years if you want to. Because since the Lord's not going to come back for another seven years, well, hey, you can wait until it's six years and 364 days and 11.59 p.m. on the clock, and then you can decide that you're going to start serving Jesus Christ. That'll never work. That'll never, ever work. The Bible does not teach that kind of second or third or fourth or fifth chance. The Bible teaches that you and I, we get one shot at this. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, Hebrews 9 verse 27. That means that we must be taking advantage of this opportunity, this life. Because despite all of the so-called signs that people claim to have, we do not know when the Lord is going to return. And furthermore, we do not know when we might die. The only guarantee that we have is this moment, this second right now that we are in at this present moment. And what we need to do is we need to help people to see the folly of believing in a terribly misguided doctrine as we help them to come to a knowledge of the truth. We don't want people to believe spirits that do not come from God. We want to help people to know the truth regarding Christ and His return and to help folks to always be ready for that great and final day. Can we pray about that? Pray with me, please. Our dear gracious God, our Father in heaven, Father, we come before you this evening thanking you for the opportunity to open up your word and to examine the thoughts that pervade our religious world to weigh those alongside Scripture. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed your mind to us, that the things that we need to know you have made known to us. And we pray, Father, that we would ever be diligent, that anything that we hear, whether it be from this pulpit or elsewhere, that we would always be testing them alongside your written word. Father, we are concerned this evening about... Uh, the doctrine of the rapture and the premillennial concepts that go along with it that so many people in our world have bought into. Father, what we pray for is we pray first of all that you would give them time and that you would give them uh, patience and long-suffering so that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. And Father, in that time we pray that you might use us as instruments to be able to help them to see the truth about what the Bible says about Jesus, about His return, and about how this life is our one opportunity to serve you. Help us, Father, to seize every moment of every day to live for Jesus. We thank you so much for Him, for His sacrifice on the cross. We look forward to, we are awaiting eagerly, we hasten His return. And we ask, Father, that you would help us each day to be prepared for that great day. And it is in the name of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, that we pray. And amen.